Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Spencer Bishens. He worked for the Social Security Administration for more than 10 years and since has written a book to help demystify the complicated disability system. So I'm excited to have him here talk about his background and experience and what it was like working for the Social Security Administration and why he wrote this book and some good details about it. So thank you so much, Spencer, for being here today. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so I am from Florida and I went to college in Florida, at Florida State. Uh, I lived in London for a year. Uh, I have a master's degree from the London School of Economics. And then I went to law school and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do in law school. And that's as far as what area of the law, but that actually turned out to be really good because I graduated law school at the end of 2007, and I entered the job market mid-2008. So for any of your listeners over the age of 30, you'll immediately see the problem there. For anyone under the age of 30, uh, the entire global economy basically collapsed right around mid to late 2008. So choosing a specific area of the law was less of an issue than just choosing a job that involved a paycheck. Uh, and I talk about that uh, at the beginning of the book so people would understand where I'm coming from and why I chose Social Security. The short answer is I didn't. Social Security chose me. Uh, at that point in time, it was apply for as many jobs as you could get. And eventually, probably someone will be hiring and it took me a couple of years, but I was eventually able to land a job with Social Security. And like most people in the United States, I knew very little about Social Security. Sometimes we hear about it in the news. I think maybe like when I'm 65, I get money and that's kind of it. So I didn't know a whole lot. And just a quick foreshadowing about later in the podcast, uh, I wrote the book because I wanted people to be able to know and understand what I wish I knew and understood, even when I took a job with Social Security. I, I, I took a job with Social Security Disability. I, I didn't even know there was a disability program when they hired me. That's how little I knew. But it's a really important program because it just impacts so many people. It, over a million Americans, there's only 300 something million Americans, over a million Americans every single year are filing a disability claim. That's a pretty high percentage of the population for this one specific program. So uh, that's my story as to how I got into social security uh, by complete accident. So what was that first job like then? You know, you didn't plan to go into Social Security and then you kind of immediately got thrown into, okay, now I have a job and you were there for quite some time. Yeah. So I was thinking I wanted to do criminal law because I had 
done that in law school. And then I end up in this realm of a federal public benefits program, which I, I is not a place I ever would have thought I would have been. Um, but it's very interesting for me because of just how massive the program is. There's over 50,000 employees with Social Security. It's, it's either the largest or the second largest component of the federal budget every year. Uh, and it's just something most people don't think about because, again, we don't expect to see anything or interact at all with Social Security until we're in our mid-60s. Um, so I started off uh, actually in appeals, which there's a, a hierarchy as far as levels of review for a Social Security claim. Um, and so just if you just picture five levels, I actually started out working at level four which you, most people you think you'd start off at the bottom with an entry-level job, but just by a quirk of where they needed people in 2010, I started off in appeals, and I was reviewing disability decisions that had already been written. But that was a great place to start because I could see claimants from all over the United States, all kinds of different medical impairments, all kinds of uh, just stories of all different kinds, people who, who had worked in retail and in food service and every store you could possibly imagine, I would see because I was working at headquarters. And so I got, it was great to see just this smattering of these stories from all across America about people who had all kinds of different levels of education and did all kinds of different jobs and have all kinds of different medical impairments as you can imagine, no two cases were the same. And so that's the part that was fascinating is every day I would get a new story. And it was the story of an American who had paid into the system, paid tax, just like you and me and your listeners. You work, you pay the tax for years. And then eventually at some point, something happened to each of these people, an accident or an illness. And that can happen to any of us, right? And that's the thing is none of us think that it's going to happen or expect that it's going to happen. But one of the things I realized is that it can really happen to any of us. Let's just say uh, I got my life insurance and my health insurance situation squared away really early on in this job because I would see, you know, all these different stories about what happened to people all across the country. And to some extent, it was a bit heartbreaking, but also knowing that we could help people by giving them the benefits that they've worked for and earned. Uh, that was also at least somewhat positive. So what was it like having like such different claims every single day? Like, did it make the job more difficult or was it kind of like everyone had to go through similar procedures? It was great for me because I was a new employee and I was learning. And the fact that I had so many different types of cases resulted in me asking so many different types of questions. 
So every day I would see some kind of new issue come up. Oh, here's a, a work history pattern that I had not seen before. Here's a combination of impairments or, oh, one case I had, um, a person was in a plane crash, but like 20 years prior. And like, you just don't see that kind of case every day. So I would see all kinds of different fact patterns. And so I, I, I was like a, just a sponge soaking up information, trying to learn as much as I could. And the social security, it's the government, right? So the regulations are so deep and so complex. There's just so many rules and procedures that it, it really took me many years to fully grasp all of it. And even near the very end, I would still occasionally see a situation that I had never seen before. And I'd have to go talk to a judge or a, a manager and say, have you seen this situation? Um, but then I also had people near, I was there almost 11 years. So near the end of my tenure, I would also have new employees coming up to me, asking me if I had seen particular situations. So um, it was, it was nice to be able to help train the next generation of employees, but I was only able to do that because I had been asking so many questions and pestering so many of the employees uh, when I started with just question after question after question so that I could try and get all of, just absorb all of this information and then that's why I wrote the book when I left. I had gathered all of this information. I wasn't a government employee anymore. And I wanted to make sure that this information was available not only to government employees, but to the claimants as well. So what was it like working as a government employee? Was it like enjoyable? Did people want to work in Social Security Administration? It's... A really interesting question, right? Because people have so many different perceptions of a government employee, particularly from like movies and television. And you just picture someone with a lanyard around their neck, standing by the water cooler, not doing a whole lot of work. And that couldn't be further from the truth within Social Security. And that's just because of the sheer volume of cases. I mean, if you now it's a little over a million people applying each year, but it wasn't long ago that it was 2 million. And if you think about the number of employees and how many cases they have to look at per day, it's, just, it's a massive, massive system. There's not really time for chatting by the water cooler. We actually did have a water cooler when I first started. Um, and, uh, I would sometimes stand near it and there was never anyone to chat with. Um, people are just really, really busy. And it, I think it's like any job. Some people enjoy it. Some people, it was their first job out of law school. And so it was just like a placeholder until they could find something else. Um, so every, everyone would come in in a different place in life and in a different place in their career. But I'll tell you, it was never boring. Again, because like I said, 
people have all kinds of different stories and you really do learn a lot about the American labor force, the American job market, the, the struggles that Americans have. I sometimes read statistics that say something like, you know, the levels of debt that Americans have or the average income in America or like so many percentage of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. And those are all just statistics until you see people's actual stories. I was doing this job. I got hurt. I tried going back to work. I couldn't. I got kicked out of my apartment. It's just, it's, it, it was really a, a cross-section of American society. And it helped me to understand that even though we might be one of the wealthiest countries on the planet, that's really very much not the case for so many Americans. So then why did you leave the Social Security Administration? When I started, um, I started back in 2010 and I was hired due to funding from the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which was law passed early in the Obama administration and signed by President Obama and just tons of federal employees were hired. It was, uh, it was a really great way to stock up on a lot of talent. And in Social Security, they really took advantage of that and they hired thousands and thousands of attorneys such as myself to uh, be disability decision writers and reviewers. And that was great, obviously, for us. And it was great that they were able to hire so many people because it allowed each person to be able to spend a little bit more time on each case. Obviously, when you have more staff, they can just ever so slightly take their time. And actually, we look at the medical evidence for every case, but maybe you just get to look at it a little bit longer and write better quality decisions. And over time, things just changed within the Social Security Administration. Um, really early on, we were doing a pretty good mix of approvals and denials. And I really felt like it was based on the evidence. And if a judge wanted to decide a case a certain way, and if the judge wanted to deny a case, for example, and I felt like this person was disabled and they should be approved, I could go talk to the judge and a lot of the judges were pretty reasonable and would listen and understand what I'm saying and let me write the decision. Let me let the evidence guide me so that I could write the most accurate decision. But then over time, and I talk about this in the book, over time that changed. And I think the agency decided for whatever reason that they wanted the approval rate to go down. They felt like they were approving too much or paying out too much or whatever. And near the end, I was writing almost all denials, even when people had really good medical evidence, even when they would have medical opinions from their doctors, strongly suggesting this person cannot work. And I'd be told to write a denial, someone who paid into the system, who really needs these disability benefits, who has earned them, and I would still have to deny that claim. And eventually that just wore on me. 
Yeah, I can imagine how that would be really rough, especially starting at a better place. Yeah, and I mean, it's hard to complain because, again, for almost 11 years, I was seeing stories of people who, I mean, the average claimant is probably 45 to 55 with a high school education, or maybe they didn't finish high school. Their average earnings are maybe 20, 25, 30,000 a year at most, usually a pretty spotty work history. And a lot of times that's because of their impairments, right? It's not that they're not good employees. It's that they have medical conditions that make it hard to work. And yeah, so obviously in my position as someone who's educated and was a federal government attorney for many years, I'm not complaining, don't get me wrong, but that's why I left. I just, I, I didn't feel like it was the right thing to do to be spending my time and using, I, I felt like my knowledge and experience was going to waste. And rather than denying claims for people who I felt like should have been approved, I felt like the better thing to do was to write this book where I could take all of the knowledge and experience that I had gained and give it to claimants and their families and their support people like social workers or caseworkers so that people would understand how the system works, why it often doesn't, and the specific things that they can do at every stage in the process to give themselves the best chance at having an approved claim. So can you take us what it was like to get through the book writing process and the publication process? My wife said to me recently, she looked at me, she's an avid reader and I am not. And so she looked at me recently and said, I never would have expected you would have written a book before me. And I said, yeah, me, me too. I, I'm just, I'm not someone who, uh, reads books. I like to read news articles and blogs and um, shorter things, but I, I'm not the kind of person who often reads 300 page nonfiction books. So to write, uh, this one's 260 pages and, and to write that at the beginning, it seemed really daunting, of course, but I also knew I had a lot I wanted to say. And so I just started writing. It's a first draft. It doesn't need to be organized. And I, all the stories, all the things I wanted to get out, I just got them typed. And before I knew it, I had almost 30,000 words, which is like half the book. So I, I was just shocked at how easy that part was. The second half obviously was not easy because I had to organize it and have it be coherent and have there be a theme and have it be easily understood by claimants and their families and representatives. But yeah, it turned out that I had a lot up here in my brain that I wanted to get out on paper. And uh, it, it did feel really good once I got at least that first half done, because these are the things that I've been thinking about for so long and thinking about, I'll just give you one quick example. When someone has a, an unfavorable decision, the appeal they file is called a request for review. 
And if that appeal is denied, they get a letter saying, we have denied your request for review. And if you think about the literal language there, we denied a request to review your case. Sounds like we didn't even look at it. And the very first time I heard that, I thought, this is really stupid language. This makes no sense. How are people not being confused by this? Well, finally, once I left the agency, I was able to take that frustration and put it on paper in plain language and explain to people, no, that's not what it means. It's the government. They'll say this. Here's the non-government simple language English translation. And yeah, it felt really good to be able to do that and to know that people are hearing one side of things from Social Security as far as language, like denied your request for review. And then it's almost like my book is educational and it's reference, but it's also somewhat of like a, a, a translation guide from government speak to regular person English. And is that, like, are you able to dumb it down per se in the book so that people are understanding what they're consuming? I'd call it decomplexifying if I had to make up a word. Um, but yeah, I, that was one of, it was really important to me to do that with the book. There are so many, as we talked about earlier, there are so many different rules and regulations and procedures and the average person doesn't know what that means and one of the things i recommend people do in the book is to have a representative but the thing is the representatives their job is to represent you in front of the judge they don't really have the time to explain things to you either so i wanted a way for people to be able to educate themselves so that they could work with their representative and not be relying on their representative. And so it was really important to me to simplify as much as I could to say, okay, this is the lawyer speak because laws are written by members of Congress and agency officials, and a lot of them are lawyers, or lawyers at least have some say in the actual wording of the law. Makes sense except that normal people can't understand any of that. So I wanted to be able to say, here's what an unsuccessful work attempt is. Here's what a trial work period is. Substantial gainful activity. Those are three fancy words that just mean, are you working and earning more than minimum wage? And so, yeah, I, it, I wanted to do that, and it wasn't hard to do because I know what these things mean, right? When you're fluent in a second language, it's easy to translate stuff into that other language. And I'm fluent in social security and most people, oh, no, no one else is. No claimants are fluent. In, I almost said almost no one, but it's no one. No one who files for social security benefits is fluent in social security. So I wanted to provide this guide. So people who are going into the process or are already in the process would be able to understand what's happening plan for it, and be able to map out their future, to be able to know, okay, here's where I am, here are the things that are coming up, this is what I know what to expect. And even if someone ends up getting an unfavorable decision, my hope is that 
at least being prepared for how the hearing's going to work, for how the judge writes the decision, knowing that there's an appeals process. I would hope that even if someone is eventually going to get a denial of benefits, because a lot of people still will, at least that there might be some comfort or familiarity with understanding how the process works and knowing that there are more steps. There's always a next step. If you get denied, you can appeal. There's always something else you can do to try and get the benefits that you have earned and that you deserve. Definitely. Now, this is your first book. Are you thinking about writing another one? Yeah, my wife made a joke about that recently. Oh, well, it's one to zero. When's the next one coming out? Um, I don't know if I, if I know enough. I mean, this is 11 years worth of knowledge in this book. Um, I have thought about widening the scope and talking about other public benefits programs, uh, but that would probably be more of a research guide. I would actually have to have statistics and citations. Whereas in this book, I specifically, I have some a few basic statistics, but I don't have any citations. And there was a really important reason for that. I didn't want this to be a research book. I didn't want to have to go find any knowledge that wasn't something that I had learned during my time with the agency. I just wanted to take what I had learned about the process, how it works, who's involved, and, and give that guide to people. And I didn't want people to get lost in footnotes or overly complicated statistics. So maybe in a future book, but this one, I just want to be a really simple guide to the social security disability system. Right. Now, since leaving the social security administration, are you still practicing law? I dabble in the law. I am licensed to practice law in Florida and Washington State, and I do some volunteer work uh, with unemployment cases um, on a volunteer basis. But uh, one thing I want to make sure people understand, in this book I recommend that anyone having a social security disability claim have a representative. And I just want to make sure people understand, I don't do those kinds of cases. I didn't want people to think that I was trying to sell my services. Oh, buy this $20 book or $10 book for the ebook. And, uh, oh, and then you find out it's a sales pitch for thousands of dollars more. That's not me. I don't take social security disability cases. I don't recommend any specific representative. So there's no financial incentive for me. It's just important for, for me to make sure that people understand having a representative is important. And I provide a couple of tips for how to find a person. And I say, you should, the most important thing is go find someone in your local area. I'm not recommending anyone specific. So yeah, I do a little bit with unemployment, but the book is, is definitely not a sales pitch for me for social security. I wrote the book. I'm happy to educate people on the process, but at the moment I am, I'm out of the biz. 
And that's, and that's a good way, you know, to also, I think, be authentic in the book that it's not just, hey, I'm, you know, giving advice recommendations, but also you can take, you can spend more money and use my services since a lot of things like that exist. Exactly. And to be all honest, I don't think I would make the best representative for anyone, even if I was taking cases, because while I worked for the agency for 11 years at the moment, I don't have experience representing clients. I was a government attorney. The government was my only client. Whereas there are social security representatives who have been representing individual claimants for many, many years. Well, that person has way more experience doing what you, you, the claimant need, which is representing you, helping you get your medical records together, uh, questioning you at the hearing, uh, writing a brief for the judge. I would read the briefs, but I haven't written one. So yeah, in all honesty, I would have been brand new into that role. And I don't think that I would have felt right recommending myself to people anyway. Um, but yeah, it, I'm not sure that I will ever do that because I have this book and because I don't ever want it to seem like I wrote this book to sell my legal services. Um, I have thought about it, but I would suspect I will probably never go into the area of representing individual claimants. I'd rather provide guidance to all claimants than to one specific claimant. And do you think that you would go back and work for the government again? That's more likely um, because there are, the federal government is obviously enormous. They employ lots of uh, attorneys and actually people with law degrees and non-attorney positions in all kinds of different agencies. So that's certainly possible. It would probably not be social security. If anything, it would probably be a different agency. Um, I don't know what the future holds, but at the moment, the, the thing that I know the best is social security disability. And so for the time being, that's my focus is making sure that I get this information into the hands of as many claimants and people surrounding the claimant who are trying to do their best to help the claimant as possible. Right. So going back to your schooling, you know, you obviously got your undergrad degree, you went to London for a master's and then got the law degree. So what was it like doing all of your schooling, especially one year abroad? The year in London, uh, was probably the where I learned the most. Um, not to like put down law school or anything, but law school helps you prepare for the bar exam, and which is no joke. I mean, I don't ever want to take the bar exam again. But the thing about going, getting an education in a foreign country, it's not the actual text that you're reading, right? It's the experience of living in a foreign country and being around people from all over the world and learning about different cultures and understanding that there are things, that people do things in certain ways 
That is totally normal, even though we don't do things that way in the United States. And when you live and work in the United States, I feel like that's often lost on a lot of people, that there is this whole world outside of the United States, and people can talk a certain way and think a certain way. And, you know, we use the word foreign, right? I'm going to travel to a foreign country because to us it's foreign. But then when you're there, after not so long, things become less foreign. And learning about uh, I, I, Europe, but also there were people in my program from Korea Japan, South America. It was a very international program at a very international university, the London School of Economics. And I think that was the most enlightening part. And I'm glad I did that when I was young. And I'm actually really glad I did it before law school. Because then when I came back to the United States and I was living in Tallahassee, Florida, which is as small as it sounds. It's the state capital, but it's as small as it sounds. I really felt like I had been exposed to ways of thinking that I knew the people around me, most of them did not have. And it allowed me to ask questions and think about concepts in a completely different way. You know, someone says something and instead of just thinking, yeah, that's right, I might think, yeah, but in another country, they might not necessarily agree with that. And especially when it comes to the law and the law is so different in different parts of the world and politics is so different in different parts of the world. We don't think of other countries as being democracies just because they're a different type of democracy than the United States. But in many ways, there are a lot of democracies around the world that are really efficient. Like Australia had an election and I think the new prime minister was sworn in three days later. So that's obviously much more efficient than the system we have where almost every election ends up in court in one way or another. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that that time at the London School of Economics, specifically just that time in London, uh, really gave me some good perspective. And did you always know that you wanted to go to law school? I thought I did. And then I went to the London uh, to London and then I wasn't sure, so sure because a lot of the people in my program, it was a master's program and a lot of the people in my program, they weren't going for further education. Their plan was to get their master's and go get a job somewhere in Europe. And I started questioning at that point, is that the better move? Um, I already had a spot in my law school class reserved for when I came back. So it was hard to give that up because it's really hard to get into law school. It's even harder today. I don't even know if I could get into law school today with the requirements. 
But in 2005, uh, I, I snuck in there just by accident of when I was born, right? Uh, and then when I came back and I was in law school, I wasn't so sure it was the right thing to do, but I was already there, so I figured I might as well finish. And I have since learned that, particularly in the United States, there are all kinds of different things that people do with a law degree. There, the, the traditional, I put on a suit and tie and go sit in an office for nine hours. Um, that, even before the pandemic, that was breaking down. And there, people are in public policy. People are authors like me. Uh, people can go work for places like the Innocence Project. Uh, the, there's all kinds of things that a law degree could be used for. And then particularly once the pandemic hit and people stopped working in offices now, I imagine that's there's so many more different things that people can do where they're working from home that, it, you know, it, it just, there's so many options. So someone asked me recently, like, would you recommend law school? And I, I don't really know because I don't know what the job market is like for people coming out of law school today. But I know that one is not restricted to the like 1960s suit and thin tie and uh, an office that's all men with a secretary who's being harassed like that. That whole concept of, of a law office is truly antiquated, thankfully, and uh, there, there are just so many options today. Right. Now, with your very, like, relaxed kind of attitude, I would say, about law school, you, you finished and you took the bar. So what was taking the bar like? It was terrible. Um, the... Think of the bar exam, and I don't think it's changed much since I did it. Think of the bar exam this way. It's not a test to see what you know. It's the people who write the test trying for about six hours to trick you in every possible way. And uh, so the questions are deliberately written to steer you kind of like the same way crossword puzzles are written where it's trying to steer you in a certain direction and trying to, with everything they can throw at you, get you to choose C, even though D is the right answer. And there are a lot of questions where there, there's multiple right answers, and so it's choose the best answer. But maybe they're all actually correct, and you have to figure out which is like animal farm style, which one is more equal. And, uh, yeah, and, and you, you have like 30 seconds to do that. So it's really, really complicated. And after I took the bar exam, I said to myself, nope, not doing that again. If I don't pass, I don't pass. I've got a master's degree. I've got a law degree. I can go do something else. But there is absolutely no chance I am putting myself through that again. Luckily, I passed, but I, I do know some people who didn't and who took it more than once. And I just, I cannot imagine that. It's, it's just such a, a drain on 
your time and energy for months to prepare for it. And because there you'll get like 200 questions and they're all about something completely different. And you have to spend so many hours to prepare for one question and you have to do that 200 times. So it's, uh, it's awful. But like I said, I have a lot of perspective now after working for social security where I know that there are so many Americans who have so much worse circumstances than me. They don't have education. They've got medical impairments. They can't afford treatment. They, it, that means they can't work and they're just in a hole that they can't get out of. So whenever I think about myself like that, I always have to come back to thinking if there's anything that social security taught me, it's, there are so many people out there in the United States, again, the wealthiest country in the world, right? And there are so many people who are struggling so much with a system that's designed to prevent them from getting out of that hole. And that's really terrible. And social security disability benefits are not a lot, but I wrote the book to try and help out in whatever small way I can to help them get whatever small amount of help they can get. Right. I really appreciate the perspective that you've shared and obviously gained from your experiences and realizing what other people are going through. Now, did you know anyone who was using social security disability benefits before you went and worked there? No, before I got that job, I literally didn't even know social security had a disability program. And that's actually really common. Um, most people just think of it as retirement, and, and so did I. I knew Social Security was a federal agency, and I had absolutely no idea how big, and I had absolutely no idea what they did other than send checks to retired people. I'm from Florida, so lots of those checks had to Florida. But I did know there was a disability program, and since starting in 2010, I have had family apply for social security disability. I've had friends apply for social security disability. I've had so many people who, I, I, there was no way I could have ever known that them or someone they know was applying. And I've had people come up and say, oh yeah, there's someone in my family who applied or yeah, I applied. I, and from those experiences, what I've learned is this program actually extends far beyond what we think. In other words, I really do think that every American knows someone who is either receiving Social Security or who has applied. And you might not know it because people don't want to advertise that, they're, that they need help. We're just we're, we're conditioned in the United States to think like, I shouldn't ask for help if when I need it, even if I've paid into it and I'm entitled to apply for those benefits. We're, we're shamed. If you need government assistance, that's like the worst thing possible, right? But of course it's not because we all receive government assistance. And a lot of us don't think of it that way. 
But if you file a tax return and you claim the homeowner's deduction and then they send you a tax refund, you just received a public benefit. So we're all receiving some kind of public benefit. Some kids get free reduced school lunch. Some people get a child tax credit. There's all kinds of different public benefits. And there shouldn't be shame and stigma when it's a program that we all pay into and that if we qualify, we're all entitled to receive money from. So I don't think there should be a stigma, but unfortunately there is. And so people don't advertise. They don't let people know that they need help, that they've applied for disability. But I've had so many people just since I've been working for Social Security and particularly in the last six months since I started writing this book, who have opened up to me and said, yeah, I, I applied and got denied. I wish I had that knowledge. I wish I knew how I could have made my application better or, oh yeah, I, I have, cur have a current application. So this is the kind of information that even though we don't think about this system, this is the kind of book that really could be in any household in America. And at some point, someone will come over to your house and say, oh, I applied for disability. Maybe I should read that. Can I borrow that? I'm, I have a cousin who's applying. It's over a million Americans every single year. And, and that's just the new applicants. If you then think about last year's applicants, you've got two or three million people in the system at any one time. It's just... It's massive, and um, I, I'm really hoping that this book does spread around the country. Not obvious, of course. That means I sell more books, right? But I I want this information out there so that no one goes into this process feeling like they don't know what's going on. You know, the worst thing is when you are stuck in some complicated process, whether it's a legal thing or a medical thing, you know, maybe your doctor's telling you something and you don't understand it, or you're at the mechanic and there's something wrong with your car and you know it's gonna be 3,000 bucks, but you don't know why. The worst thing is not understanding, especially if you have no choice. If you're applying for disability, this is the system. So I don't want people to be in that system and to be frustrated because they don't understand what's going on. Definitely. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners today? No, I think we pretty much covered it. Um, I do want to make sure people know that uh, Visions Publishing is on social media, and we have a website, visionspublishing.com, and there's a link on there to send an email. So. Maybe I missed something in the book. Um, you can feel free to send us a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And uh, unfortunately, the one thing I can't do is answer specific questions about your specific situation. For that, as I said earlier, and as I say in the book, you should have your own representative who understands your specific circumstances. But if I missed something, where I didn't describe the law completely, send me a message. I'd be happy to answer questions. 
Alright, I'll of course make sure to leave a link to your website in the description of this episode so people can easily find you. Now at the end of all of my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question. So my question for you... 14. <laughs> that will not work for this question. I just, I just gave you a random answer. <laughs> uh, so my question is, what is the best grocery item? Ever? Or like currently you could do both if they're different the best grocery item anything by the checkout all of those impulse items like the gum that's the best stuff All right, that brings this episode to a close. I'll be leaving Spencer's website link in the description, as I mentioned earlier, so you can go get in touch with him, find him on all of the social media and all of those good things. And if you would like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. That, of course, brings you to all of our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, you can do that with the link in the description. And if you'd like to email me and be a guest on the show, you can do that. I always love meeting new people and hearing new stories. Thank you so much, Spencer, for spending time with me today. And to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed answering your questions. Thanks for having me. Bye.